Hi and welcome to the Mount Hamilton Baptist Church podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. For more information, go to mhbc.ca. Jeremiah 24 verses 1 through 10. Skilled workers and the artisans of Judah were carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The Lord showed me two baskets of figs placed in front of the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like those that ripen early. The other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. Then the Lord asked me, what do you see, Jeremiah? Figs, I answered. The good ones are very good, but the bad ones are so bad they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart." But like the bad figs, which are so bad they cannot be eaten, says the Lord, so will I deal with Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the survivors from Jerusalem. Whether they remain in this land or live in Egypt, I will make them abhorrent and an offense to all the kingdoms of the earth, a reproach and a byword, a curse and an object of ridicule, wherever I banish them. I will send the sword, famine and plague amongst them, until they are destroyed from the land I gave them and their ancestors. Thanks, Wendy. And this is the time where we learn together from this passage, and I give what we call the message or the sermon about that. I want to start with a story. The story involves a woman and a man who had moved to a new house. And on the first day that they moved in, the woman was looking out the window when she noticed her new neighbor was hanging a load of laundry on her clothesline. And she noticed that the clothes was very dirty, that she could see stains. And she said to her husband, wow, can you believe how dirty that woman's clothes are? I would, I would be embarrassed to hang that up for everybody to see. Well, this pattern continued for a few days. Every couple days, she'd put out another load of laundry. Again, the woman would go and look and comment, I just cannot believe how dirty that woman's laundry is. I can't believe, can you imagine putting that up where everyone could see such stained and dirty laundry? Until one day, as the woman was looking out the window, she said, honey, you won't believe it. The woman's laundry is clean today. I don't see any stains. I wonder what happened. And her husband said, well, I don't know if anything happened to her, but I cleaned our window. Today's story, the one you just heard read, is about a group of people who were challenged to look at their own dirty windows. So I'm going to tell you a bit more about it. So the person that we are talking about who had this vision, this was a vision that he had from God, was a prophet named Jeremiah. And this is sometime before Jesus. It's in the part of the Bible called the Old Testament. And at this time, there were people that God would call up as prophets, and he would call them out, and he'd say, I'm going to use you to give messages to my people. 
This is 625 BC when Jeremiah receives his call. And the Bible says he's very young when he's called. In fact, he's so young that when God calls him, he says, God, I'm too young. I don't, I don't want to do it. I'm not ready. And God says, you know what? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to use you. It's a beautiful story. And so Jeremiah is used for a long time. He was called young, so he has a long season of prophesying. In fact, his time of speaking for God lasts through four kings. It's long. And also, uh, it lasts through a really difficult time in the history of Judah. This is Judah. This is what we call the southern kingdom. God's nation of Israel has been split in two. This is the south. It's where Jerusalem is. The holy city is. This is where Jeremiah is going to speak, and he speaks through a really difficult time. He sees, that, he sees it all. And we begin in, in, when we read Jeremiah, we start by seeing the prophecies that he makes uh, during the reign of a king named uh, Jehoiakim. There's a lot of J words here, so I hope you can follow with me. So Jehoiakim, uh, and when he is king, uh, they have turned from God. And this is the issue God has in general, that these were God's chosen people, and they had a covenant that God had said, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be your God, I'm going to love you, I'm going to care for you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to set you apart, um, and I need to be your God. But they were not remembering their part of the covenant. And so God is repeatedly sending prophets to say, there's, there's going to have to be a consequence here, so you come back to me. And this is what Jeremiah is saying. And what he's saying specifically, which would have been very scary at the time, is that the nation of Judah is going to fall to Babylon. So Babylon at this point is a superpower. It's big. It's got a lot of power. A lot of people are scared of them. So it would be no different than someone coming to us today and saying, just so you know, the United States is going to come and take us over and defeat us. We would not like that. That would be very scary. And at this time, it was very probable because it was the type of thing that nations did. And so no one really wants to hear this. And in fact, um, Jeremiah writes a whole scroll. He writes a whole list of prophecies about the stuff that's going to happen, that Jerusalem's going to fall, that the temple where they worship God's going to be destroyed. No, it's, it's not well received by the king. It says that the people are, are challenged, but the king sees the scroll and says, throw it in the fire. Put Jeremiah in prison. Jeremiah's gone into hiding, so he avoids prison. But he comes back out eventually. He starts prophesying again. So he's prophesying all as this is getting ready to happen. Um, Jehoiakim wants to protect his nation. And so he is adamant that they can stand up against Babylon, even though Jeremiah's like, nope. Got to listen to what God is going to say here. This is God's plan. Um, and finally, Jehoiakim says... I'm not going to pay uh, Babylon tribute. I'm, I'm, just, I'm not going to do that. He does a whole bunch of, of political things to prove his independence. Babylon's basically like, all right then. And they, have, they come and they siege Jerusalem in 597 B.C. And what happens at this time is they come, they siege it, and, they, and in the midst of this, because it takes a, it's over a series of months, uh, Jehoiakim dies, and his son Jehoiakim, so M versus N, not that different, is now king. Um, and during the siege, Jehoiakim actually says, you know what, I'm going to have to surrender. So Jehoiakim, the new king, he surrenders, and him, and, it's, uh, and we read it here, and it says actually there's 7,000 uh, men who could serve as soldiers, uh, 1,000 workers, so some of their best workers, and all their families, they are taken to Babylon. 
So they go as this, in this exile to Babylon where they will serve the king. They'll serve King Nebuchadnezzar. So that's what's happened to Jehoiakim's offspring, Jehoiakim, just like Jeremiah said. But um, there's a whole group of people still left in Jerusalem. And they set up a king named Zedekiah that is still going to rule in Judah. So there's this king named Zedekiah that's still in Judah. So hopefully you followed this. There's a group that have been taken to Babylon. They're over there. But Zedekiah is still ruling in Judah with the majority of them who are still left. And while this is happening, Jeremiah has a vision. And it's the vision that you just heard. It's a really straightforward vision. He has a vision of two baskets. One is a basket of good figs. Figs might not excite a lot of us, but this was a very, you know, this was a delicacy. This was something people really loved. It says figs like you would have get in the early harvest, which was an early harvest of figs was especially valuable, uh, considered especially delicious. And the other basket has rotten figs, which no one would want to eat. So this is the vision. Good, tasty figs, yucky, rotten figs. And God says, here's what these baskets represent. The first basket, the good, tasty figs, they represent the people that have gone to Babylon. They represent the exile. I'm going to protect them. They're going to be looked after. They're going to come back, and God's story will continue. God has not forgotten his covenant. He said the bad figs represent the people that are still here, Zedekiah and his followers. They are going to fall, and they will not continue, and their power will end. Now, here's what's interesting about this vision. This would have been a shocking vision. This would have thrown people because here's why. The people that were still in Jerusalem, the ones who hadn't been taken away, they figured that the other guys were the ones that God had judged, right? God had taken them away. We got left behind. We're nailing this thing. That's sort of their attitude, right? And God does, he turns on his head, he said, actually, the good figs, the blessed ones are the ones who've been taken. Those are the ones where my story will continue. You're going to fall. And so they would have been, wait, hold on, no, no, you see, we weren't taken. Like, we're still here. We still have the temple. We still have God's blessing. And Jeremiah says, not so much. Um, In one way, you might say that God is looking at them and he's saying, you need to look at how dirty your window is. It's actually pretty dirty. Now, as we look at this story, it's an interesting story on its own. Maybe some of you think, I think it's interesting. I love this kind of stuff. But, of course, the question is, what does it have to do with us? This happened a long time ago. (laughs) And these are not scenarios that we live in. We're not in this type of situation where some of our country's taken somewhere else and we're trying to decide who's God's blessed and hasn't blessed. But I think this speaks to us in some real ways. And there were two ways this week that the story challenged and humbled me that I'd like to share, and maybe you'll resonate with them. The first thing is that I was challenged when I think of the story to remember all the ways that I find it easy to say, look at the other guy. They are the ones who've got it wrong. I am so glad I am not like them. And I do this in lots of different ways, when I'm honest. I mean, this week alone, if I were to count the number of times as I was reading Twitter or social media, I found myself going, ugh, those other Christians. It would be a lot of times, I assure you. And how often I think, I can't believe they're doing that, or I can't believe they're letting that happen, or I can't believe they allowed this to happen. Meanwhile, I'm just watching from a computer screen. I'm not doing anything about it. But somehow, I feel I can say, ugh, those other guys. 
It's really easy to point our finger at others and not look at what God has to say to us, right, when our windows are dirty. Now, science confirms this. Reality is science tells us that we have a tendency to overestimate ourselves. And there's lots of studies that back this up. In one study, it took place in Cornell, they gathered a group of people to ask, you know, if they were generous. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty generous. And 80% of people committed said that they, if given the opportunity, they would give to a charity and how much they would give. Shortly after, when the opportunity came up, only half of them gave, and they only gave half what they said they would. In another study, they took pictures of individuals, and then after they took that picture, they altered it using Photoshop, and they created a series of photos. So using photos, uh, Photoshop of that original headshot, they had some pictures where they made the person increasingly more less attractive, and somewhere they made the person increasingly attractive. And after this was done, they asked people to come in and pick which was the original picture. Which picture was really you? And you know what one people picked? Usually two or three levels of attractive higher. Now you might say, I'm not like that. I'm so hard on myself, right? I'm not so, I don't do that. I, you know, I really struggle with that. And it's true. Sometimes we can be hard on ourselves too, but actually we know scientifically that we have a tendency to justify ourselves more than we justify others. For example, someone's driving a little fast down the road. Oh, they are awful drivers, terrible, dangerous. We're driving a little fast. Well, the thing is I really have somewhere to be. That person online, they're just a jerk. Now, when I made that comment, it just really needed to be said, like someone had to speak up. They are selfish. We would never do that. They are difficult. We are strong-willed. <laughs> Their children are bad and inappropriate. Mine would never act that way unless they're hungry or tired or just being kids, right? There is a song that came out a year ago that I think is so perfect. The song was called, Thank God I'm Not You. These are the words of the song. I'm a coward. I'm a freak, the scum of the earth, a liar and a cheat, but I could be so much worse. You call me narcissistic, they say I'm the worst, but I could be so much worse. Thank God I'm not you. I'm such a sinner, I've been since birth, but thank God I'm not you. Wow. <laughs> I'm awful, I'm awful, but I'm a little bit better than you are. Dirty window, dirty window. Um, and that's just what's happening in this story, I think, right? Is that God's speaking to a group of people that are like, they were taken into exile. That is a shame. We're still in Jerusalem. They've been taken captive. We remain. God blessed us, not them. I think how we do it is if we're followers of Jesus, right, is we say, they are missing scripture. We would never do that. They are forgetting what Jesus said. I know what real Christianity is. And we forget how often we can be like the Pharisee in another story in the Bible. And this is a story that Jesus told. And he said that one day there were two people and they were praying to God. And one was a Pharisee, which was a religious leader, a really devout religious guy. And he stands up and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I give a tenth of all I have away. I fast. I worship you. Thank you. Especially that I'm not like this guy over here. Because at the back it says there's a man sitting who was a tax collector. And people at that time hated tax collectors. They saw them as betrayers of their people. They saw them as sinners. And so he says, thank you that I'm not like him. 
And then the tax collector, it says, prays, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus, after he told that story, said, I tell you, it's the second man that went home justified before God. Isn't that interesting? He says the second one is the one that was able to receive mercy from God. And so I think of how often I need that prayer, that I need the prayer of the tax collector, the one that says, God, have mercy on me, more than I need the thank God I'm not like them prayer, right? How often I need the prayer that lets me really look at myself and receive God's mercy instead of just pointing out why I'm not as bad as the next guy. I need the prayer that says, have mercy on me, O God, for I judge what I read online while I'm sitting behind the same useless computer screen. Have mercy on me, God, for growing angry with someone when I'm having a bad day. Have mercy on me, God, for seeing poverty and doing little to change it. Have mercy on me, God, because I judge. Have mercy on me because my windows are dirty. And the first thing that this story does is remind me of that. It reminds me to look at my own windows. Um, because sometimes they need a cleaning more than they need me to look at what's happening outside them. And the second thing that the story of these two baskets of figs uh, reminds me that really stood out to me is the reminder that God does pretty great things in the people on the other side of the window. In this story, it surprised everyone who God was going to use to keep his story going. It was the people that they assumed God had abandoned. But God was never going to abandon his people. God never does that. God was going to bring them back, and they would be restored. He would never forget his covenant with his people. That's what God is like. And God then, but he also chooses to use the people that everyone assumed God had forgotten, that they assumed God had judged, that they assumed were outside the story. In this story, the exiles, the one living in Babylon, devalued by the world, looked down at by the world, judged by the world, are identified as the bearers of God's future. That's pretty cool. And I think, you know, it's not just a matter that I can sometimes judge and be unfair and, you know, I miss looking at myself and I make it about others and not me. But then I think when I do that, I could actually miss the very place where God is working because I've assumed wrongly who the good figs are versus the bad figs, and I've got it wrong. And so today I think it's valuable to ask ourselves, who do we devalue, right, either in our own hearts that we might not want to admit, or as Christians, or as this church, or as the church at large, or as a society at large? Where do we say that is where God is not, clearly not with those people, Who do we think and assume God is saying you're the bad figs? We may need to be challenged about that, that we can't really be sure. Scripture points to the fact that God may surprise us, that the place where God will work may be the complete opposite of what we think. It's all throughout the Bible. Here it's when they say, well, obviously God's with the remnant that's left here. Um, And actually God's like, no, I'm going to work through the exiles. And it continues when Jesus comes and the people like the Pharisees and the religious people are standing up like God is working through us and Jesus is like, actually, you know where you're going to find the kingdom? You're going to find it among the poorest and the most broken and he spends all his time with the people they thought were sinners. And it continues today, which is why we need to ask ourselves, where are we saying, oh, not there or not there? Because it might be where God is saying, yeah, exactly there. Because that's what God is like. 
Where we see only bad, God can make good. Now, in the end of this story, you might wonder what happens. You heard the prophecy, right? So remember I said it's right in the middle of this, uh, the book of Jeremiah that this happens, that this first group of exiles are taken away. Um, and if you know the history, um, that was just actually a, a glimmer of what was to come. In a decade, Zedekiah is still on the throne. The Babylonians really hit their limit, and they go back. And this time, the siege is much bigger. They starve the city out. Thousands die. There's references in Scripture saying people eat the bodies of their children because they are starving to death. It's ugly and awful. And Jerusalem falls. It falls big and hard, and the temple's destroyed, everything Jeremiah said. And Zedekiah is brought back to Babylon, and Scripture says they kill each of his children in front of him one by one, and then they, kill, then they gouge out his eyes. Great time to be alive. Um, all that Jeremiah said happened. He fell. And Jeremiah, through all that, keeps prophesying, and he stays in Jerusalem, where now there's just this really small remnant left. And he keeps preaching the same message. God hasn't forgotten us. God hasn't forgotten us. God hasn't forgotten us. The remnant's going to come back. They're going to return. The exile are going to, the exile's going to come back. They're going to come back. And God's story's going to continue. And God's story's going to continue. And although Jeremiah saw the fulfillment of the prophecy of the fall, he didn't get to see that fulfillment. But it does happen. They do come back. And God rebuilds, helps them rebuild. And then... The story goes on until out of that line we see Jesus is born and the whole world is redeemed. There is always redemption. There was bad fruit, but there was also redemption. I mean, so today, as God's people, we've been talking about vision. We've been using stories of vision to think about like how we find vision in our lives. Where do we go? Where should we look? How should we, when we're trying to figure out what to do? As people who want vision today, one more question I ask you. We've talked about asking for wisdom. We've talked about learning from others. We've talked about uh, embracing the holiness of God. Today I ask you to consider if you sometimes are looking through dirty windows. Can we see that God may be where we did not think God could be? Can we change our prayers and change from the thank God I'm not them prayer to the prayer that says, God, clean my windows. Clean my windows first. God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, God. And redeem me. Because God can make good fruit. And that can be us. So let me pray. And so God, have mercy on us. We know that we can get really blinded by our own dirty windows. And we can judge and we can point the finger. And God, as we look at ourselves, have mercy. And redeem us, God. Keep working in the unlikely places. And we trust that your story will keep going in our lives and in our city and our church and our world. Have mercy on us, God. Amen.